talking and I'm not and I'm just <laughs> And then I'm talking <laughs> No, but wait, wait, I have something for him. Boom, you get shot down. Now you're just fucking me, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just wondering why all these people like kids. The Weird History and Eerie Tales Podcast. Concentrate on the news. It's what we do. Wow. <laughs> FYI, there's nothing wrong with Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Weird History Eerie Tales Podcast. I am your host, Moses Soria, and this week I am revisiting a topic that we've covered before. The worst ways to cure everything. Today, I'm going to be talking about some ridiculous and some not-so-ridiculous ways we have used animals in aiding us when we are feeling ill. So sit back and enjoy the show because some of this gets pretty um nuts. The year is 1893. And during the first World's Fair in Chicago, a man named Clark Stanley needed to make an impression. And a good one at that if he wanted to attract anybody to his stage. Pabst Blue Ribbon made his debut at this fair, and the first electric kitchen was also on display. So Stanley wasted no time. He stood on stage in front of a crowd, getting bigger and bigger, waiting to see what he was going to do. So he pulled out a rattlesnake, showed the audience the live rattlesnake, and immediately slit the snake open with his knife and threw it in a vat of boiling hot water behind him. As the snake fat rose to the surface, Stanley skimmed it off, mixed it onto an already prepared jar made for rubbing on the body to help relieve pain, and sold it to the crowd as Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment. The funny thing is, 24 years later, when the feds got involved, we would discover that his snake oil liniment had no snake oil. In fact, it was only these people at the fair that actually purchased liniment with real snake. The rest of his supply was only mineral oil, beef fat, red pepper, and turpentine. Four years after his debut at the World's Fair, Stanley published an autobiography that was part exaggerated nonsense, part western poetry, and part promotion for his snake oil, and the book was called In the Life and Adventures of the American Cowboy, Life in the Far West. And here is where Stanley claimed he learned of the great and mysterious healing power of snake oil from the Hopi tribe. Although it sounds like a great story, the truth is a little more complicated than that. Remember, this was the 1800s, and America was in the middle of a Chinese immigration boom. And during this boom, Americans got a close look at many traditional Chinese medicines, many that both scared and also intrigued Americans. To the Chinese, snake oil was a popular and legit medicine used to relieve pain, reduce inflammation, and help treat arthritis. This Chinese snake oil was made with the fat of Chinese water snakes, which were high on omega-3 fatty acids. The only problem with the Chinese water snakes is that they can only be found in China. So if any immigrants brought their own supply, it was going to be finite. And after you run out, you are out. So what did a lot of people do? Well, they looked for the local snake. And if you were anywhere near the Rockies, which our good old Clark Stanley was, the local snake was the fucking rattlesnake. 
and unfortunately for everyone, the rattlesnake contained almost three times less fatty acids than the water snake, so the snake oil was nowhere near as effective. Stanley, he didn't put any snake into his snake oil. It didn't matter to him. People still ate his shit up because he was a fucking master at self-promotion. During an interview, he made sure to have his office filled with snakes crawling all over the room and even up in his arms. So Clark went about a snakeless snake oil for 20 years. And 11 of those years, he was successfully operating even after the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 began shutting down many of his colleagues and other quacks like himself. But they didn't catch up to Stanley until 1917. They seized a shipment of his snake oil, they tested it, and concluded that his liniment was fake. But he was only charged with a $20 fine for misbranding his product, and after that, he just fucked off into obscurity, a wealthy man. You know, but we've all heard and read many stories like Stanley's about how a certain something off a certain animal could aid you. Whether it's the tusks and horns off of elephants and rhinos to help men with their dummy gummies, or eating the brains of monkeys to get a little smarter. For thousands of years, mankind has been crushing, testing, butchering, and torturing animals both legitimately and illegitimately. If we're talking strictly sound science and adding no morality to this equation, of course. This method is called zootherapy using animal products and medicine, and occasionally zootherapy has led to some crucial discoveries. Like for example, the fruit fly helped Thomas Hunt Morgan in his early studies of genetics, Ivan Pavlov demonstrated the relationship with sense stimulation and body functions with dogs, fucking Edward Jenner developed the first smallpox vaccine from cows, which is why he coined the term vaccination, because the Latin word for cow is vaca. The more you know. But we've also used animals in helping us with our own healing process. Leeches for a long while were an important little guy. Check out our The Worst Ways to Cure Everything episode to learn more about these leeches. Snails have been used to heal burns. Spider webs have been used to bind a wound. And maggots are used still to this day to help clean out wounds. But I'm not going to sit here and say it's all been gravy, because I'm pretty sure odds are that for every one cow that helped humanity avoid smallpox, a few thousand died in the name of bullshit. Take this for example. Here is a legit prescription for insanity from the Renaissance era. Bake a loaf of bread, then remove the inner part and replace it with the brain of an ox. Tie this ox brain filled bread to the patient's head, and the insanity is cured. How many fucking oxes died because of this? Probably a thousand times, a thousand too many? Is it oxes? Oxe? Ox? Well, whatever the plural is, we have maintained a stupid ass belief that if the animal is strong, then it will pass its strength on to us. And sometimes it wasn't even animals. If you go back and listen to our worst way to cure everything, we fucking heard 
how many people thought that drinking the blood of dying gladiators was an elixir for a billion different things. But like I said, we had this ridiculous belief that if the animal is strong, then it will pass its strength on to us. If the animal is wise, then it should pass its wisdom to us. But if the animal is virile, it will pass its virility on to us. And if I were to ask you, the listener, what's the most virile part of a virile animal, what would your answer be? If you said it's fucking balls, then you are correct. Advertisements in the 1930s pulled no punches. They got right to the point. Here's an ad aimed at the fellas with limp dicks. Do you wish to continue as a sexual flat tire? And if you didn't want to continue being a sexually flat tire, then you would turn to doctors, such as John Romulus Brinkley, who practiced a fucking ridiculous method in curing the age-old problem of male dummy gummy. Brinkley, he convinced a ridiculously amount of horny, desperate men that all they needed to do to fix their quote-unquote flat tire was just to get a new pair of testicles, goat testicles, to be exact. This deranged asshole would cut open the testicle sack, would implant slices of goat testicles, and then sold the poor sack up. Flat tires everywhere were immediately fixed, and Brinkley became a millionaire. But Brinkley just didn't pull this method out of his ass, even though it sure sounds like it. But this dickhead, he was following the lead of a Russian scientist. It's always the fucking Russians. If not them, then it's the Nazis. They're always doing some fucked up weird shit. But anyways, this Russian scientist, he practiced medicine in France and Egypt. Serge Voronoff became convinced early in his medical career that we got old because of decreasing hormones. Basically, the aging process was sped the fuck up because of decreased hormonal activity. So obviously, if you wanted to reverse the aging process, all you needed to do was increase the hormone production. So at 33 years old, Voronov had the brilliant idea to self-experiment. So this brave bastard injected himself, and I'm assuming he injected the boys, with grounded up testicles of castrated dogs and guinea pigs to see if it would stop him from aging. It didn't, but even though it didn't work, he somehow convinced himself that his theory made sense. So beginning in 1913, he took it a step further and transplanted the testicles from a baboon into the old wrinkly sack of a 74 year old man. He didn't 
outright just swap the testicles because that's beyond torture considering a baboon's testicles are considerably larger than our very own unless it's like a hot day and like we've been out like you know like maybe after a good stroll around disneyland and like in the middle of summer when our boys have been marinating in the heat and then maybe maybe the swap for like one for one would probably be conceivable but okay yeah so Instead of a one-for-one -one swap, what Voronov did was quote-unquote transplant slices of baboon testicle, thin slices, measuring two centimeters by half a centimeter. This way, the slices would be absorbed and not rejected by the human body. And it worked. The absorption part, not the rejuvenation thing. The monkey tissue died and the medical results were non-existent. But the placebo effect? That old man walked out of that operation table as if he had fucking Mjolnir dangling in between his legs. And if you thought this was like a one-off thing, it wasn't. For as long as man has had testicles, there have been tales, such as the medieval legend that beavers, who were aware they were always being hunted, would chew off their testicles at the side of a human and throw them directly at their hunter. This is a lie, or I really fucking hope it is. Beavers, both male and female, they would excrete this yellow liquid called castorium from their castor gland, which, would, which they would use to mark the territory. But for humans, beaver nuts were useful for pretty much every medical condition at some point in history. For, like, the sperm whale, you know, they have their own version of this castorium called ambergris, and this is used for both medicine and perfume. Obviously, this shit is rare, and at one point shared the same value per weight as gold. And during medieval times, this was thought to help with, like, curing your headaches, your colds, heart disease, epilepsy. If you had the funds, you carried with you an actual testicle full of the stuff. Because we thought for a long time that the castorium was found in the testicles. Obviously, it wasn't. It was found in the scent gland. So there were actually people walking around with beaver testicles in their pockets thinking they were being protected from the plague. Well, you know, we're back to Varanoff. So this asshole, he labeled his fucking operation a success. And in 1923, 700 physicians presented themselves at London's International Congress of Surgeons when Varanoff presented his new quote-unquote surgical technique these fucking assholes ooing and eyeing actually gave Voronov's ridiculous claims legitimacy at this congress he stated that his successful transplant resulted in an increase in the sex drive more energy better eyesight longer living stronger wi-fi whatever else he needed to say to sell his operation to these doctors he said it and they all bought it. Voronov also had the luck of being around in the 1920s. It was exactly the right time and place for his monkey ball surgery to become not only legitimized, but actually a hit. He made the monkey gland transplant, as he called it, all the rage among the well-to-do, and it made Voronov not only a celebrity, but a wealthy celebrity surgeon. Voronov quote-unquote, performed 
his $5,000 or $65,000 in 2020 money surgery on over a thousand men in the next decade. And if you're wondering where in the world he, did he grab all these monkey testicles from? Well, this asshole had a farm in Italy where he would literally pluck at his own discretion. But like everything that becomes a fad, it eventually started to come down. And as the years went on, it started to become increasingly obvious that he was full of shit. And his monkey gland transplant was too. Voronov, he disappeared, but he ended up dying a wealthy man in 1951. But as the age-old but as the age-old adage goes, history repeats itself. And it was only a few years after Voronov's downfall that our Brinkley from earlier, you know the one who learned from Voronov but instead used goat testicles? That's when he came onto the scene. Brickley didn't even bother trying to become a doctor. The so-called quote-unquote doctor went to a cheap quack school called the Eclectic Medical University of Kansas City. All Brinkley wanted was to become rich and famous and fast. And he did it with his GOAT scheme. With the exact same result as Voronov, with the transplanted tissue being rejected by the body, but the placebo effect being potent as fuck. Brinkley took his goat show on the road and toured all over the world in the 1930s. When asked by medical professionals how he knew his surgeries worked, Brinkley always replied, I can't explain it. I, I don't know. But everything eventually crumbled and karma came from hard. He died broke and bankrupt in 1942 after an avalanche of lawsuits. As medicine developed and we got better as time went on, we have started to rely less and less on the deaths of animals for ridiculous cures. And instead, now we just keep them in cages and use them for experimentation. <sighs> but we haven't completely cut out animals from our drugs, our medicine. We use insulin for our diabetics, lanolin for our dry eyes. Premarin for postmenopausal hot flashes and heparin to prevent blood clotting. The only thing to wonder is what of today's medicine will people in the future look back at and think, look at these fucking dumb assholes. My guess it's either the tiger bone that is used to treat a man's flat tire or the bare bio used to treat inflammation that is such that is such the rage in Japan. But I wouldn't be surprised. If your guys' president's take on injecting disinfectants takes the cake. Like we've just heard, man has experimented with medicine to try and cure what ails us. But just as much as we've used external sources, from goat and baboon testicles to the fat and certain snakes, we would also look inward or should I say downward, toward our crotches. Sex and sexual activity has been used for everything from female hysteria to hemorrhoids and medicinal sex hit its peak in the 19th century, when the Victorians, unable to separate the politics and biases from their sexual diagnosis, they began to show their incredible hypocrisy 
by prescribing sex and abstinence as a cure, sometimes for the same disease. Physicians, they encouraged female masturbation while also talking down on male masturbation. Fucking sellouts. But looking back through history, we're able to see how far back we've been horny to cure anything. So right now, I want to talk about the ancient Greeks for a bit. Melampus was the big dick in ancient Greece, popping up here and there throughout Greek mythology. One story goes that the ruler of Argos, which is still around today, called up Melampus asking for his help. During their religious ritual where many virgins worshipped the phallus, aka the dick, leading to the eventual loss of their virginity, the virgins did like Iron Maiden and they ran to the hills. Literally. So Melampus' job was to go get them, so he tracked down the throbbing pack of virgins and convinced them to not only come back down to the city, but to actually come down and have sex with the strong young men of Greece to fix their hysteria. And it worked. And after getting their backs blown out by the 300, they <laughs> resumed their normal lives back in Argos. The interesting thing about this story is how far back the man-made problem of female hysteria goes. Melampus' story of healing the virgins was a starting point for the quote-unquote female madness that occurred from a lack of sex, which eventually led to him introducing the Greeks to the worship of Dionysus, the god of fertility. Are you anxious? Nervous? A little sad? Well, don't worry. All you have to do is stop by one of the many drunken orgies happening around Greece and get your shit cracked until you feel better. Hippocrates was another Greek that wrote a lot on the female hysteria, which was a blanket term to place all female health problems under the premise of a wandering uterus. He thought that a woman could literally wolverine almost all illnesses through sex, because once it's satisfied, the wandering uterus would stop wandering around, making them sick. Hippocrates also championed the idea that having sex would widen a woman's birth canal, which would lead to a healthier and cleaner body. So basically, he was like the first frat boy who thought that a, who thought that a woman could lose their gorilla grip if they had enough sex. But the crazy part was that he was kind of right. No, not about losing you guys' gorilla grip, but the whole having a wider birth canal was actually a good thing, because research suggests that women who have an extra large, um, who have wider birth canals often have less painful cramps. So Hippocrates encouraged that women get married so they can be, in Cardi B's words, certified freaks seven days a week. But it would be almost another thousand years before a prominent pro-female sex positive figure would arise. In the 11th century in Italy, Chora of Salerno appeared and was literally the first female doctor in medieval Europe. She pointed out how awkward it is for females to discuss sexual diseases with a male doctor, considering how intimate that conversation is. She encouraged women to have an active sex life and viewed abstinence as a cause of an illness. She recommended musk, oil, and mint to calm any sexual desire, if needed. But if tea ain't your thing, don't worry, because the Victorians invented so many things that would help all you ladies calm down that wop. But like I mentioned a few minutes ago, the peak of sex 
as medicine or a peak or the peak of sex used as medicine was at its highest during the Victorian era and women were diagnosed under the umbrella of female hysteria. So if you were alive and you went to the doctor for any of these symptoms, fatigue, anxiety, mild depression, headaches, cramps, then you would be diagnosed with hysteria. Shit, right now I'm like six for six in symptoms. But things got so out of control that female hysteria became a sort of epidemic. And during the later half of the 19th century, a Dr. Russell Trowell declared over 75% of women in the United States were suffering from hysteria. But don't worry, he had the cure. A pelvic massage. Now, imagine waking up tired with a headache from a long night of crying because of your anxiety and the only cure was going to your doctor to get fingered to nut? What's even grosser is how they fucking phrased it. They would say, a pelvic massage of enough vigor to eventually induce a hysterical paroxysm. Women were actually prescribed genital massages to induce orgasm to help cure their hysteria. Okay, ma'am, you're suffering from severe hysteria? So here's a prescription for 10 days worth of finger blasts. It's for twice a day, once in the morning, and once before bed. And even though it sounds like some sort of horrible perverted master plan that some gross doctor came up with it was actually kind of the opposite the doctors you know they they did not see these pelvic massages as anything sexual but the vast majority of physicians were beyond annoyed and hated doing them they complained that the correct technique was very difficult to learn and it took too long to make a woman orgasm these were doctors who spent years in medical school learning about the human body and they said out loud to the public that they not only didn't know how to finger a woman but that it took women too long to come fucking doctors gave all the men back then a fucking l to hold some doctors even went as far as saying that pelvic massages were causing them cases of wrist ache because it would often take the woman over an hour to come. It got so bad for the doctors that they would soon invent their rescue and today's enemy number one, the fucking vibrator. The first electromechanical vibrator was no fucking joke. This steampunk Liam Neeson sized vibrator weighed 40 pounds and it was so fucking big that it needed a fucking car battery to work and it came with accessories called vibratodes and it was invented by Dr. Joseph Mortimer Granville and the vibrator was a huge hit with doctors because it went from finger blasting the lady for an hour to just jack hammering them for five minutes for them to gush. Talk about shooting yourself in the fucking foot. Eventually, the vibrator became portable and doctors were soon cut out of the picture altogether. Soon, every lonely, throbbing housewife was able to order herself her very own vibrator for a few dollars in the Sears catalog. Like the Pokemon craze of the 90s, these fucking, these fucking vibrators were all the fucking rage. So much so that the vibrator 
became the fifth electrical appliance introduced to the modern home. The fifth. It went number one, tea kettle, two, sewing machine, three, the fan, four, the toaster, and five, y'all nasty ass bullets. The vibrator was introduced before the fucking, like, stove, and it was... What, well, whatever, whatever, whatever. Ads for the vibrators ran in all the magazines. And here's one, for example. The secret of the ages has been discovered in vibration. Great scientists tell us that we owe not only our health, but even our life strength to this wonderful force. Vibration promotes life and vigor, strength and beauty. Vibrate your body and make it well. You have no right to be sick. Thankfully, when the 20th century rolled around, psychoanalytical techniques improved, and with that, these blanket diagnoses, such as the female hysteria, slowly went away. In its place, the proper diagnosis of anxiety, depression, epilepsy, schizophrenia, and personality disorders were finally being accounted for. Then, in the 1920s, early porn films started using the vibrators, and just like that, the vibrators were no longer seen as medical devices, and they were moved over a few aisles into the sex toy section. But vibrators, you know, they weren't the only sex toys in the market. Sure, it was used as a medicinal device at first, but it was for a made-up illness. In the 1890s, advertisements began popping up in medical journals for Dr. Young's ideal rectal dilators, aka the butt plug. These early butt plugs were made of rubber and sold in sets of four that went from half inch to four inches and these butt plugs were sold as health aids. These ads claimed that Dr. Young's rectal dilators were really useful, especially for two things, constipation and hemorrhoids. If you prescribe a set of these dilators in some of your obstinate cases of constipation, you will find them necessary in every case of this kind. Dr. Young sold his rectal dilators for $2.99 until the 1940s, when the U.S. attorney seized a shipment of his butt plugs for misleading the public. Dr. Young, he saw how much his butt plugs were selling, and he said fuck it, and he started claiming that by sticking his rectal dilators up yourself, you can also fix your foul breath and bad taste. Dr. Young said fuck brushing your teeth, just plug up and you're good. The FDA told Dr. Young that his claims were without merit and nowhere near accurate. And not only that, but if you have hemorrhoids, the last thing you want is to be plugged up when you're inflamed and your booty blueberry is blossoming. So the FDA told Dr. Young to go fuck himself and he ceased production of his butt plugs immediately after. But as we all know, when one man falls, another man takes his place. And that's exactly what happened to the butt plug. Not long after the FDA put a stop to the medicinal purpose of Dr. Young's rector dilators, a psychologist with an interesting philosophy about sexual energy started to take a foothold and influence Western medicine. Dr. Wilhelm Reich, he had a very complex theory about a universal life called organ, or chi, or the force as some of y'all nerds would like to call it. His theory argued that organ was an all-living matter, 
and that the reason for diseases was the result of organ flow being either restricted or not flowing enough to cure what ails you. And the best way to build up and share this organ energy? By fucking. He was all for sexual freedom and he viewed that human sexual appetite was essential for living a healthy life. He was a hit in a post-World War II America. His whole thing was his organ box. His institute built and sold, for donations only, his organ boxes or organ energy accumulators. His organ boxes were basically these large empty boxes that you would stand or sit in for hours at a time. They were built with alternating layers of organic and non-organic materials inside the walls, which he, Dr. Wilhelm, would claim that would increase your organ energy. Feeling a little sad? Sit in the box. Low on energy? Sit in the box. Need to fuck but don't want to? Get in the fucking box. So you would sit in this fucking thing for hours at a time, building up your organ reserves and feel a lot better again. His organ boxes were really a great way to gather up sexual energy by building up your libido through sitting for a long ass time. These organ boxes were so popular that even fucking Albert Einstein was curious enough to try one out. But he quickly figured out that both the box and Dr. Wilhelm were full of dog shit. Famous author William S. Burrow, author of the, you know, of the Naked Lunch, Junkie, and many, many other books, he was a die-hard proponent of the organ boxes. So much so that he built his very own organ box. He would spend hours inside as a way to reduce the symptoms of his quote-unquote junk symptom. William S. Burrow was a heroin junkie and he would go through his withdrawals inside these fucking boxes. But Burrows, he was so pro-organ box that he introduced Kurt Cobain to them. You guys can go to our Instagram to see Kurt Cobain inside an organ box at Weird History in Retail's Pod. But eventually the FDA came after Dr. Wilhelm for his false claims. And even went as far as getting a federal injunction barring distribution of his Oregon materials. He was tossed in jail soon after for not listening and selling across state lines. And because of it, a lot of his Oregon material was destroyed. Even though the vibrator, organ boxes, and the butt plug didn't work out for medicinal purposes, the idea of enjoying a healthy sex life has beneficial medical benefits. Even though you don't need a 40 pound vibrator snow plowing your WAP while you sit inside an organ box with a four inch rectal dilator, regular sex can improve your immune system, lower your blood pressure, improve your sleep, and lower your stress levels. So ladies, next time you have a headache, just have your man's Touch that little dangly thing that swang in the back of your throat.
And there you have it, folks. That is our episode on the worst ways to cure everything. Brought to you by Quackery, a brief history of the worst ways to cure everything by Lydia Kang and Nate Peterson. You guys can purchase the book by following this episode's show notes. But I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And speaking of, uh, of episodes, it's been obvious that the guys have not been with me for a few months now with my brother being sick. But the good news is he's almost fully recovered. So thank you guys for all the messages that you guys have sent us regarding my brother and his health. Like I mentioned last episode, he was really sick and in and out of the hospital. But he's better now. The pneumonia is almost completely out of his system. Um, he's breathing normally now. And the only thing he needs to do is just continue resting to get his energy back. Because pneumonia is a bitch and fucks your body up like a motherfucker. And that's why the guys haven't been here. My brother's been in the gulag, and I didn't want Achi exposed to anything me and my family might be immune to. So we're looking for a return back to form by this week. Uh, it's not a promise, and entirely, and it's entirely up to how my brother feels. But if he stays recovering in the pace that he's currently recovering in, then recording this week seems very doable. But for those of you wondering, we have an alien species episode coming. And to celebrate Halloween, we have a two-part episode on a certain piece of shit. Uh, but before I end this episode, some of you guys have mentioned that you guys like hearing some of my music recommendations, which mostly fall under, you know, the death metal spectrum. So if you guys would like, I can do a list of bands like artists that I've been listening to or that I'm hyped on to end a few of these episodes like this one. Don't worry, even though the majority will be like death and black metal and all that heavy metal satanic shit, I'll, you know, I'll still throw in some hip hop and you know, like a bangers to round out the lists for, um, those not into, you know, that type of music. So, um, I hope you guys enjoy this little list that I'm coming up with. And, um... Thank you guys, and as always, we are the Weird History Eerie Tales Pod. Alright guys, so up first is a band called Like This City. Uh, they're a melodic death metal band from the Bay Area. You know, they are a top five band for me in terms of like influence on my playing and things of like that nature. Um, fronted by Laura Nicole, you know, they are a criminally underrated band. The best way I can describe their music is if, if it's is if um, two Iron Maiden and Judas Priest loving like guitar bros started the band after discovering at the gates and like dismembered. They went f uh, they went away for a few years, but they got back together and put out the amazing Terminal Bloom that came out I think two years ago. All their music is fucking amazing. But if you guys want, you guys can check out the um, Anhedonia Epidemic, which is the track three off of the Storm Chaser album. Ten, ten band another band that i've been listening to is um lately is dark tranquility that's another band that has been a huge influence on me they're considered to be like one of the whole like one of the pillars of the whole gothenburg sound along with like in flames and at the gates they're that type of melodic death metal they've been around since the 90s and they haven't missed a step and they recently put out a single called phantom days from their upcoming album which i'm so fucking excited for phantom days is fucking it's an amazing single so if you guys want Check that out. They're really melodic, but not at the expense of any aggression. Like I said, check out the Phantom Days, their new single. Or if you guys want, check out one of the biggest songs called Lost to Apathy off of the character album. Damage Done is my personal favorite album. So if you guys want, you can check that one out as well. Next on the list is a band called Anal Nathrak. 
Now here's a band that will not be a cup of tea for the majority of you, and that's okay. They are this amazing blackened death like noise grind band. And they just put out a new album a few days ago called Endarkenment, which I'm sure will be on a lot of people's top album of the year. Requiem is the closer off of this album and it's a fucking banger. But if you guys want, check out Metaphor for the Dead off their Vanitas album to get a good idea of what these guys are about. Then we have Necrophobic. These Swedish black and death metal legends have done it again with their latest single, The Infernal Deaths of Eternity. I can't say enough good things about these guys and especially this fucking song. It's amazing. So if you guys want, check out their single and pop in their last album, Mark of the Necrogram, to hear how a blackened death metal album should sound. Okay, so let's make a left turn with Stupid Young. So if you're into like that ignorant gangster shit, then you should check out Stupid Young. His music is full of that G-Funk gangster rap that, you know, LA is known for. He's an Asian crip from Long Beach. Check out his latest song, I Can't Change. That's a like perfect song to cruise to. You know, it's a vibe. It's a whole vibe. So just make sure you know where you're cruising at while listening to Stupid Young. He's been one of my favorites for a really long time. If you guys want, you guys can check out some of the songs called Mando, which is featuring, uh, featuring Mozzie. Which he, which also, which Mozzie dropped two fucking amazing albums this year. So check out Murder Scene, Trust, and Bruce Lee by Mando. And then lastly, we have YG. YG, he just dropped an album, My Life. It's cool and all, but it's, I miss old, ignorant YG. You know, from his bangers like I'm a Thug, Part 2, Bacon Back Being Bull, BPT, and Still Brazy. Still Jealous is a good song. And it's always a good time when you hear Toonchi talk, you know, talk that gang shit like he did on Bloodwalk. I'm just, it, it's a good album. I'm just really into ignorant YG. Um, just, again, you guys check that, uh, check that album out. My Life 400. So, um, yeah, so those are, you know, that's what I've been listening to these past few days or these past few weeks. Um, check out the show, uh, check out this episode show notes. And I'm going to have every song that I've mentioned in this list in there. Uh, the links for their YouTube thing, cause like, so you guys go out, so you guys can just click on them and just check them out and see what you guys think. So again, hope you guys enjoy it and thank you guys. We are the Weird History, Eerie Tales Pod.